Hello there, and welcome to the third and final episode of our series on Africa's growing e-health sector, brought to you in partnership with Salient Advisory, Curacell, and RxAll. In the first two episodes, we've heard about Africa's unique healthcare challenges, how startups are developing innovative solutions to access and affordability issues, and what governments, investors, and donors can do to ensure they can scale their impact. In this final episode, we're looking to the future at what a tech-enabled African healthcare landscape looks like and what best practices we can employ to make sure we get there. We hope you enjoy it. So far in this series, we've looked at the inherent issues within African healthcare for both providers and end users and how startups are solving those issues. In this episode, we're looking into the future at what increasing impact these companies can have on healthcare outcomes. Bizarrely, one of the biggest impacts e-health startups could have on the space is the behavioural change they provoke from incumbent healthcare companies and institutions, be they hospitals, pharmacies or pharma companies. This is Yomi Kazim, Engagement Manager at Salient Advisory. Large incumbents, for example, are now adapting to provide the kind of solutions that startups might be offering to consumers. And one way to illustrate that is with regard to online pharmacies. So an online pharmacy essentially is um, a digital channel that allows you to go online, um, you know, find a, a medication and order it and receive it. Uh, but what we're saying is that traditional established pharmacies that have been in the marketplace and have like retail chains and have existed for upwards of, of a decade, in some cases, two decades, are now adapting their business models to go from just being purely physical retail chains to also layering on top of that digital channels for access as well with online pharmacies. Given the innovative nature of their solutions, particularly in more remote areas where many people are less tech savvy than those in cities like Nairobi, Lagos or Cape Town, do startups have to convince users of the value of their solutions? Yomi doesn't believe so, but says there's certainly a need to adapt and educate. I don't think it's a case where they don't see the value. Um, in, in, in a lot of the cases that our, you know, that our research touches on, they, they see the value and they absolutely, you know, love it. So it's, it's not a case of not seeing the value. I think it's, it's more of a function of, of, um, educating and, and basically marketing, putting the, putting the solution, um, in their faces or, or basically helping them become aware of that. And, and interestingly, there are a few, a few startups out there, a few businesses that, adapt their 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 business models to actually fit within the context of rural realities. Um, so in Kenya, Copia, which is a large e-commerce company, but also has, um, you know, um, health product operations, that is, um, they distribute medicines as well, or health products to be more specific. Um, they, they have a model where people in rural communities across Kenya can place orders for these products through, um, you know, their agent-led network. So you walk into a merchant store and they can guide you as you place that order and you can pick it up from there. So I do think that the value is clear when um, residents in rural communities use these tools because the challenges that they face are very real. And when they use a tool that solves those challenges, it's also very real. And so if you have a parent in a, a rural community, for example, where access to healthcare obviously might be problematic or access to health products might be problematic, and there's a solution that solves those problems, the benefits and impact of that solution is very and clearly real. So I don't think it's a, it's a value, it's a question of the value. The value is obvious and clear when the solutions are used. It's um, at this point, of course, with a nascent ecosystem, it's a question of getting the solutions um, being adopted as widely as possible. 
Adebayo Alonge, founder and CEO at RxAll, says there's often some early reluctance that needs to be overcome when it comes to building a user base. Many healthcare systems remain undigitized. Hospital pharmacist systems, healthcare systems actually using the basic entry software because many of them are still reluctant to use it for various reasons. You know, um, sometimes they're just used to the current pen and paper method. Some people feel that it's faster and more efficient for them than using software. Um, some others have concern about data and whether that data is ensconced in the institution or can be accessed by the software provider or third parties. So even this basic, I would say we're still in the early innings uh, in the space um, because there's still a lot of healthcare facilities that are still not yet digitized. Henry Mascot, co-founder and CEO at Nigerian startup Curacell, says the key to gaining adoption is proving your ability to solve a problem. If you're solving a real problem um, and it's a problem that is, you know, really painful and, you know, the customer will, um, you know, will cross that chasm much faster and trust you because they have a problem that needs to be solved. Um, they don't care, like, who solves it um, and so on and so forth. So I, so for us, like, yeah, early days, um, you know, it took us a few, yeah, a few meetings trying to convince people. Um, because historically speaking, we sell software, um, and most of that software, historically speaking, some of those businesses we work with, which bought it abroad, right? It's like gone to the US or gone to India or gone in Europe to get, get those solutions. And so, um, what we had to prove in the beginning was cool. Like, can you deliver the same level of quality and the same level of service that we would get, right? By, that we'll get, you know, from, you know, going offshore. And, and so, yeah, so pretty much then it was um, overcoming that barrier around, um, is your product good enough? What must be remembered is that tech is just an enabler, however powerful an enabler, and that the human element within healthcare provision remains crucial. Here's Adebayo. I believe it's an enabler. Um, healthcare, first and primary, is a human um, endeavor. It's a human relationship. You know, it's someone who is at the worst moments of their life, um, being vulnerable with someone else, um, who they expect to be able to take care of them for various reasons, but mostly because um, they have been trained in that specific medical um, practice. So um, I don't believe we can remove or we should remove the human element um, of um, healthcare provision. Um, so technology in itself, um, should be used primarily to enable this human-to-human interaction um, when healthcare is being provided. You know, um, enable a patient to uh, easily find the healthcare provider of their choice. Um, enable a hospital system to quickly triage patients, um, even if they don't have um, a lot of staff. Um, that's where maybe you can use uh, AI. In, in sort of medical triaging um, and technology, for example, for enabling um, the stores or the medical practices, digitize operations so that things, the healthcare professional is spending less time doing uh, repetitive tasks and they can spend more time doing the healthcare activity that actually makes more of a difference 
um, using technology, for example, as an assistant in a surgery uh, room um, to reduce um, contamination of surgical equipment, um, to improve um, speed at which the surgery is being done, and to potentially um, replace um, medical staff that Africa is losing a lot now. Um, to the Western world, um, so that there's no um, there's n- there's no lack of uh, the ability for a healthcare system to provide the services that patients really need, even if there's no healthcare uh, provider at certain cadres of the of the profession. So all in, I would say, uh, technology in itself, uh, I see it as an enabler. It's an enabler for access. It's an enabler for speed. It's an enabler for organization. It's an enabler for affordability. And uh, I believe that's where technology has its own role in healthcare. That said, tech has major potential as an enabler of positive development in the African healthcare sector. Is there any ceiling for what African health tech can achieve? We asked Yomi. These are large, vast populations of, 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 of people and communities that we're talking about here. And access is a major significant problem across them. Um, it, it's hard to talk about and envision a ceiling when, when the starting point itself is still at a very low level. There, there are several communities where access primarily, you know, is not guaranteed. Um, so looking at, at communities within that context is hard to then imagine or think about a ceiling. I think solving the access problem itself is, is really enough um, to consider a, a situation where there might be a ceiling for, for these solutions. Adebayo says he foresees a snowball effect whereby existing solutions build a critical mass, which creates data that allows further valuable insights and therefore solutions to be created. I would say at the point where we reach a critical mass of um, data aggregation, um, the next step um, would really be planning or executing on top of that data. So it would um, involve, for example, the use of uh, machine learning for helping um, a hospital um, find out which uh, patients' loads, uh, which patients have specific therapeutic loads that they should adequately um, staff for. Um, it could also be um, tied as well to pharmacy stores uh, moving on to the online space and um, attaching a chatbot. Uh, that potentially enables patients get some diagnosis up front um, before making a, an order or before being transferred to speak to a pharmacist. Uh, I'll say this is some sort of the extensions that uh, can be built on top of the data. From a pharmacist perspective, it would be uh, using all of that data that you have um, to potentially underwrite uh, a loan. Um, on inventory um, for a hospital system, using all of that transaction data uh, to underwrite an uh, asset loan, uh, maybe to get new equipment into uh, the hospital. And then once all of that sort of optimizations are sort of done, that helps um, these businesses in healthcare uh, make more money from the data that they they have generated or they're generating, um, the sort of next steps after that would be really trying to tie that into the community. So 
Uh, ongoing, obviously, needs to be regulation around data privacy, similar to what you have in the U.S. around HIPAA, um, data privacy for patients, um, the means for uh, what they call interoperability. So it's like um, all of the various uh, healthcare facilities that have now installed and are generating data from the software, they need now to be able to share it um, across one another. You know, so uh, me as a patient, I should be able to have a way to have the centralized control of my healthcare record. So if I saw a doctor in Lagos and I travel to Kenya, the doctor should be able to have access um, to my medical history and adding to that medical history after seeing me. So there's that piece around interoperability and decentralization in terms of data access um, that I think would be sort of the further steps down the line um, to make sure that the healthcare system as a whole is working in unison. Um, and then tying that into public health. So, for example, if all these things are all tied together, um, it's possible to now build build um, a universal data analytics on all the data that has been generated um, that can now be fed into public healthcare planners so they can see in real time um, where therapeutic indexes are showing up, like where people are showing up with maybe more of a certain kind of condition, how prices are varying across different parts of the ecosystem across the continent, how um, wait times are for specific um, procedures, you know, and that you can now use that data in real time for, for planning, right? So that's how I see uh, a meaningful type of progress in the e-health e uh, industry and how it can happen. A potentially bright, connected future then. Salient Advisory releases an annual market intelligent report that helps inform key decisions on how to effectively engage with the leading healthcare startups on the continent. This year's report is focused on supply chain startups, but many of the findings are relevant across the board healthcare-wise. So what are the key recommendations from Salient to ensure the impact of e-health solutions is scaled as far and wide as possible? One of our key findings this year is that uh, there, there, there's, there's growing interest from governments in working with innovators. Um, we see that happening uh, um, broadly across as many as 12 different countries. But as these innovators serve governments and beyond governments, large you know, purchasers or large clients, um, a key recommendation we have is that there should be trade financing solutions for them. Um, if and this is where again, you know, the, the the grant ecosystem or the global donor ecosystem has a role to play. And so the idea is, if trade financing vehicles and trade financing solutions can be put in place, then innovators can have access to those to ensure that um, they can service, you know, large scale partnerships or orders from from large clients, um, and and those partnerships can effectively be de-risked, ensuring that in the short to medium term they're sustainable. And that in the long term, as they validate and show their impact, um, they can then be, you know, essentially standardized or or left to run on their own, so to speak. So, so that's a key recommendation. There's also a need to more clearly quantify the impact of government startup partnerships. Again, this is another key role that uh, or, uh, another area where, you know, global donors and the do global donor community can play a key role, which is essentially funding the, the, the implementation research uh, or impact studies that are required to generate evidence of the impact of these partnerships, which will do two things. First, it'll provide evidence to other governments and other large purchases of the 
um, significant benefits or impact of the innovators and their solutions. And then secondly as well, it'll help you know the, the donors and global health agencies themselves um, identify key points where they can engage and have the most impact. And in some cases also identify you know promising local innovators that they can purchase supply chain services from as well. Because ultimately, if the supply chain solutions are going to achieve scale, a key thing that needs to happen is large purchases, which would be typically governments and global health agencies, you know, um, adopting or purchasing services from them. Yomi also wants more innovation support programs to be created for the innovators on the one hand and public purchases on the other. By working together better, they can create clearer pathways to impact. One of the themes that emerge when we engage with both innovators and with government agencies and officials is, in some cases, it's not it's not very clear how they can work with each other. There are some clashes in, in terms of like culture. Um, government's processes are slow and bureaucratic. Um, innovators' processes are typically fast-paced and fast-moving. And so having these innovation support programs where um, both parties can essentially, you know, learn from each other, um, there will be two-way capacity building and learning programs, and, and that can bridge crucial gaps. If, if you better understand how to work together, it means that the partnership has a greater chance of being successful. But even more important as well is providing specific support to governments themselves. Um, in, some, in, in, in the context of many African cases, governments are particularly not clear on how to maybe perhaps structure performance-based contracts or develop, uh, build, and test, uh, and monitor pilot programs. So providing that support to enable them to do those things can mean that there's a clearer pathway to adopting um, supply chain solutions from innovators, which of course would then translate to significant public health benefits. Because ultimately, if the people you know in in the country, if, if the if the people that the government is responsible for, if you like, have greater access to to health products, have safer access to health products, that can only be a good thing, and that can you know that will ensure positive, more positive health outcomes. Plenty of suggestions there then for how to more quickly advance African health tech. There's plenty of work to be done and plenty of room to grow. Henry says it's still day one in terms of what e-health startups can do on the continent. I think generally in healthcare, there's still a lot more to be done than what has been done. Um, and so there's still a lot of massive opportunity. Um, it's just, you know, some of those businesses are easy finding sustainable models to keep deploying um, some of this infrastructure. Plenty of room for growth then, in a burgeoning e-health startup ecosystem, and the potential impact ventures operating in this space can have on healthcare outcomes on the continent is immeasurable. As ever, many thanks to Salient Advisory, Curacell, and RxAll for making this series possible and giving us their valuable insights. We'll be back next week with our regular Month in VC podcast. See you then.